Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. So despite our best intentions, we have been very busy the last couple of months because we're both seniors in college and have not had time to record a lot of episodes, but we are trying to fix that now by recording one about historical romance novels. But before we get into it, is there anything that you've been into or up to since we last recorded, Lulu? Well, a fair amount of things, if we're being honest, because it has been kind of a while since we recorded. But I think one of the main things is that I am in the throes of an obsession with the new Interview with the Vampire TV show, which is kind of a gothic tragedy horror romance about vampires in Jazz Age New Orleans. And I literally think about it all the time. It makes me so sad. I literally don't know anything about the well-known book it is based off of or the well-known movie that they also adapted a couple years ago. But like I watched the TV show recently and uh, I just, it makes me very sad. And the lead actor is very good. And I think about it all the time lately. On the other end of the spectrum, when I am not being sad about gothic tragic vampires, I have been reading some kind of romance novel stuff because, I don't know, I'm busy during the school year and I like to give myself a nice little light fun read in between course readings. So I just finished reading A Restless Truth by Freya Marsk, which is the sequel to A Marvelous Light, a book that we talked about in an episode a while ago, part of a series that's kind of a mashup of historical romance and fantasy following magicians in early 20th century England. And the sequel is about the younger sister of one of the protagonists of the first book, who gets stuck on a transatlantic ship crossing with a murderer running amok on the ship. And it's quite fun, sort of like Agatha Christie knives out on a boat type vibes with also a very fun central romance and some magic. I really enjoyed that. I think we're going to do an episode talking about A Restless Truth at some point. So stay tuned for more thoughts about wizards on boats. I also finished reading Over Thanksgiving Break, Honey and Spice by Balo Babalola, which is a contemporary rom-com about a university student who runs a radio show giving love advice. And she kind of drags this guy on her show because she thinks that he's sort of a player who's been leading girls around campus on. But then she ends up having to fake date him at a party to get her terrible ex off of her back. And they end up deciding to sort of pretend to be in a relationship, except, oops, it turns out they actually like each other and there's like an actual real connection. And I thought that was really fun. It was quite funny and the two late characters had some really good chemistry. So if you're looking for like a fun rom-com with a spin on the fake dating trope, I would recommend that. I think it's also going to be the topic of a future episode because we want to talk about the very specific fake dating trope in romance novels at some point. So if you want to hear more about that, you can stay tuned. Is there anything that you have been into that you want to highlight before we start talking about the actual subject of this episode? Well, I recently went to go see the new Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever. I have been pretty out of it when it comes to Marvel for the last couple of years. I haven't seen most of their movies and TV shows that they've been releasing, but I really liked the first Black Panther movie, so I went to go see this one in theaters, and it was definitely worth it. I loved it as much as I loved the first one. It had a really great soundtrack, really awesome fight scenes, and it's just really cool to watch like a big budget action superhero movie that centers a bunch of characters of color, and it was just really good. I especially liked their reinterpretation of the underwater city of Atlantis, which in this version is like more culturally inspired by like the indigenous history of Mexico. It was just like really cool. And I loved that part of the movie. So I had a great time watching that. And I'm so glad that I managed to get to see it when it was in theaters. 
I also recently read Winter Be My Shield by Joe Spurrier, which is a, I think, slightly obscure adult fantasy novel, at least I haven't met anyone else who's read it, which is about Sierra, a woman who has the magical ability to take power from pain and is on the run from the horrible magician and his slightly less horrible apprentice who want to use her power to try to kind of take over an empire. And I thought it was really good. It had some really cool, fun, twisty politics and morally complex characters who have done bad things but are trying to be better and cool descriptions of wintry landscapes. And I like all three of those things, so I enjoyed it a lot. And I will definitely be reading the other books in the series at some point. Over Thanksgiving break, I also gulped down the book The Kingdoms by Natasha Pulley in about two and a half days, even though it's a pretty chunky novel. It takes place in an alternate version of England where France won the Napoleonic Wars and is about a man called Joe Tournier who has amnesia and begins to slowly realize that a lot of the stuff that he's forgetting is kind of important and might have some sort of connection to time travel and a mysterious sea captain he meets who is definitely more than he appears to be. And it was really good. It's like a big time travel book about like war and society and like changing timelines, but it's also a book about like love and the things that you'll do for the people that you love. And it made me very emotional and it was really good. I liked it a lot. And finally, I also reread the book Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, which I hadn't read for a couple of years, but I liked just as much as I did the first time I read it. It is a fantasy retelling of the fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin set in a world that's inspired by Slavic history and it has a Jewish protagonist which I really loved and it's kind of about like powerful bossy girls who get things done and the debts that people owe to each other and like communities coming together in times of trouble but also about frost elves and fire demons and cool magic and it was just generally really good and it's one of my favorite books I think so I'm glad I reread it. That is what I have been up to. However, we are not here to talk about any of those things, not even Interview with a Vampire, as much as we would like to talk about that for hours and hours, but we are here to do an episode on historical romance novels. This episode has been a really long time in the making, like we started reading books to prepare for it over the summer, so we're going to talk about a fair amount of books, but I also want to just sort of say up front that historical romance is a very big subgenre of romance, and we've just selected a couple, and we're not really experts. I would say that I do enjoy reading romance novels interspersed among other genres, and I especially think that historical romance can be fun, but we are not like, you know, educated experts on this whole genre. So we're just kind of here to talk about some books that we've enjoyed and some general aspects of the genre and some tropes. So just like, I, I know that there's a lot of romance novels out there that I have not read, so I just sort of wanted to mention that even though we're going to be talking about a fair amount of them, there are many more out there we have not read. Even though we're not experts, we have like dabbled a bit in the genre and have read like some books by authors like Cat Sebastian, KJ Charles, and Courtney, Mil and Courtney Milan. So we're not totally new to this genre. It just is a very large genre with a very long history. So we were talking about a couple books that we like from it that are not like the whole entire genre. I guess we are normally a podcast that does science fiction and fantasy media. But I think we've done some stuff that has pretty strong romantic subplots, like A Marvelous Light by Fran Mars is pretty romance heavy. I also have been sort of undertaking a very specific personal task this year, which is to read a lot of romance novels, because I realized that I'm quite bad at writing romance in my creative writing projects, but I have creative writing projects in which there is romance, so I figured that a good way to get better at writing romance would be to read a lot of books centered around romance and sort of understand how characters' relationships and chemistry are constructed and like what the tropes and genre conventions are of romance novels. 
and sort of how to write a compelling romantic relationship between people. But also I think when I am tired or stressed, it's nice to relax your brain. And instead of reading something that's like intense and heavy or complicated, you can just pick up a romance novel and they tend to be like lighter and more fun. And you kind of know what you're getting into when you pick one up. So I think especially over the past couple of years, both of us have started reading more romance novels than we did in the past. Yeah, I've definitely started reading more in the last couple of years, especially as the world has become, you know, kind of sucky and I needed something that had like a guaranteed happy ending and banter and people falling in love and nice stuff. Like romance novels, I have a lot of respect for authors who write that romance genre because I think writing romance is, it's really hard. Do you know how hard it is to write two characters falling in love making it like compelling and cool and a little bit sexy? It's really hard. Uh, but I have a lot of respect for romance authors for doing that like over and over again in lots of different ways and managing to make like old tropes feel new and fresh. And like you said, it's also just really nice to pick up a book knowing that it has a guaranteed happy ending and at the end of the day you'll like feel nice and satisfied by it. So I think that's why we both have been getting into romance novels more in the last couple of years. Like, you know, I don't exclusively read romance novels or anything, not even overwhelmingly, but I think especially during the school year when I'm like reading medieval literature or like intense books about war or like nonfiction, it can be nice to sort of relax by reading something that is a bit more lighter and is just focused on like making you feel good with characters that are likable and fun. But also romance novels, I think, can explore some pretty interesting and complex topics, which we'll talk about a little bit. And I think I gravitate towards historical romance novels because I think it's honestly because I grew up reading a lot of fantasy books. So I enjoy reading books that are not set in the contemporary present day world, but also because we are both people who are currently studying history in college. So it is fun to read historical fiction. And also a lot of fantasy books that we read are like historical novels with elements of magic, like our Black History Month episode we did a while ago was about books that are the past, but there was some magic interspersed in it. So I think I'm drawn to books that are set in the past as opposed to books that are set in the present because it's like it just feels different from the contemporary world and it can be sort of fun and like maybe not necessarily escapist because the past can be a bad place but you're like I'm experiencing a new world that is different from ours. Characters aren't worried about like public transit and job interviews. They're worried about like dukes and stuff and that can be like just sort of an interesting change of pace. Yeah, I think I'm also drawn to historical romance for the same reason that you said, which is one that I am a history student, so I like reading romance novels being like, oh, hey, I recognize that thing you're talking about. I studied that in my seminar. And also because I do really like fantasy novels and I love like a good fantasy novel with like court politics and drama and stuff, and you can always find some kind of like political drama and gossip in most historical romance novels. I would say that there are some contemporary romance authors that I really like. Like I really enjoy Charlie Hibbert's Brown Sisters series, which is super fun and delightful. But in general, I think like if you listed out all the romance novels that I've read, I've probably read more historical romance than contemporary just because of what I personally enjoy. I've also watched some movies and TV shows that I think would follow that would fall into that genre like I've watched the TV show Bridgerton which I had a lot of issues with the first season and I still had some issues with the second season but was like enjoyable to watch in that it's kind of fun to watch a like fairly big budget historical romance show with everyone being like dramatic and having love triangles and trusting their love to each other so that is like one aspect of historical romance that I've enjoyed consuming I think. I think Bridgerton is probably the most mainstream example of historical romance. It's based off of a book series, but it was adapted into a Netflix show, which is pretty popular. Popular enough that it kept coming up 
in discussions in literature and creative writing classes my junior year of college, which was kind of funny. I personally have not seen Bridgerton. Uh, I don't know if we want to get into why I haven't seen Bridgerton, but I have my reasons. But I there are historical romance stuff that I enjoy. Like the movie Bell, I would say, is it has a strong romantic element and it's set in a historical time period. And I was really into that movie in high school. But yeah, I would say Bridgerton is maybe sort of one of the most well-known current historical romance things, but I am more familiar with the book end of historical romance rather than the film adaptations that have come out recently. I think we could maybe talk about some sort of conventions of historical romance because then we can talk about how the books we are going to feature in this episode do or don't fall into those conventions. One pretty popular trend in historical romance novels is that they're set in England during the Regency era, which is from around 1811 to 1820. And once I noticed that was a trend, I was like, huh, what's up with that? That's a really specific time and place. So I kind of Googled it and I found this article on JSTOR Daily, which is called Why Are So Many Novels Set in the Regency Period? Which was pretty interesting. Basically, the nine-year period deemed the Regency era is a time period when King George III was deemed unfit to rule and his son, King George IV, ruled as a regent. And this was a time period where aristocracy really flourished. I think the article of this actually traces the popularity of this setting in romance novels back to not Jane Austen, who was actually writing during that time period, but to the 20th century author Georgette Heyer, who wrote a lot of popular books set in that time period. I personally have not read any Georgette Heyer, but I have heard a lot of authors discuss her as being very influential on the genre of historical romance. But also that being said, I have heard, you know, Oftentimes I've heard this being discussed within the context of her books being both influential, but also like containing racism and anti-Semitism that is not really like critiqued with authors having to sort of grapple with the legacy of her being hugely popular and kind of a, a foundational keystone of the popularity of this genre, but also not maybe being like having aged super well. So like we talked about the novel Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho a while ago, and Zen Cho has talked in interviews about how that book was partially written as a response to Hire's novels, which is why it specifically centers two characters of color and discusses like colonialism and imperialism and the impacts of that on like Asia and Africa. And so I think historical romance novels are often set in England as well, though there are some that I've um, heard of that are set in like America or Asia, but they are usually set in England, most often, sometimes other European countries, they also usually focus on upper class aristocracy. So there's a lot of like rich people going to balls. There's also a lot of upper class drama surrounding marriage and reputations and stuff like that. Also a very specific trope was that oftentimes the male lead in romances between a man and a woman is a rake. So that's kind of a guy who has this long romantic history and is kind of a lovable scoundrel and he has a reputation and he has a lot of experience romantically and the female character is often like less experienced and maybe more of a wallflower. I also feel like male leads in romance novels are very often dukes specifically, though I have encountered like some marquesses and viscounts. They tend to not be like upper complete royalty like princes, but also it's generally not focused on people who aren't titled nobles and I think sort of the, the middle ground of that is duke. I think that about sums up a lot of the really common conventions of historical romance pretty well. I will say it was very funny when I started reading historical romance and I was like, man, all of these are set in the same nine-year time period, and man, they are all about dukes. The percentage of Scottish dukes residing in London between the years 1811 and 1820 is vast. It is enormous. It's honestly very funny once you read and you're like, man, these are all dukes. Oh wait, there's a there's a Marquess, but that one's also a duke. There are some dukes in this episode, but there is only one Scottish duke, so make of that what you will. 
Let me try to shake things up a little bit. There are a couple of dukes who are in the books, but not the love interests. So there's also that. So now that we've sort of given a rundown of kind of genre conventions and tropes and the evolution of the historical romance genre, I guess we can sort of dive into talking about the specific books that we read, which we selected a couple of them. And we're just going to talk about them for a couple minutes each, I think. So the first book we're going to be talking about is A Caribbean Heiress in Paris by Adriana Herrera, which is set in the 1889 World Fair in Paris, which is a really fun location for historical novel, romance or otherwise, but is not one that I've really seen discussed that much, so I thought it was really neat that this kind of tapped into like this interesting time period. It follows Luz Alana Haif Benzon, a Dominican heiress who's recently taken over her family's rum business and hopes to secure some new clients if she travels to the World's Fair. The other protagonist is James Evan Sinclair. I don't remember exactly how the Evan ended up with his nickname. It's definitely in his name somewhere. I don't remember exactly where, but it's in there. Anyway, Evan is a Scottish Errol who runs a whiskey distillery and is in Paris for similar business reasons. The two of them kind of get off on the wrong foot at first. They're both like strong personalities with strong ideas about how they run their business and how they want to manage things. And then they eventually realize that it would perhaps be mutually beneficial to both of them and their interests if they perhaps got married and combined their business ventures. Surely this has nothing to do with the attraction that's also between them. It is purely for business reasons. Purely, of course. Basically, A Caribbean Heiress in Paris is a romance novel centered around the trope of marriage of convenience. And that's essentially when characters decide it would be helpful if they got married, but they're not getting married because they are in love at the point which they decide to get married. I would say that I'm going to draw a distinction between the marriage of convenience trope from the arranged marriage trope, because I think in marriage of convenience, the characters have more agency in deciding to get married because there's some beneficial reason, often involving an inheritance clause, where it would be good for them to be married. Like, I think they both have slightly contrived, complicated reasons in this book, but essentially, like, the characters need access to uh, stuff that they can only get if they are married, like dowry presents and, and inheritance and stuff like that. But in an arranged marriage trope, two characters are just kind of told by their families that they have to get married. And I, I personally do not enjoy the arranged marriage trope, but I do enjoy the marriage of convenience trope because it means two characters who are like not romantically involved decide it would be helpful for their respective situations if they get married. And then usually along the way, they're like, oh no, we have actual feelings for each other. How do I tell my spouse that I'm in love with them? Which is like a funny conflict. Also, to be clear, sometimes when these characters decide to get married, they already have some kind of romantic attraction to each other, and are merely justifying getting married with the marriage of convenience. This is purely for business only, which also leads to a lot of really amusing situations. So whether or not the characters are already interested in each other before they propose the marriage of convenience, it always leads to like a lot of delightful scenarios about like, oh, God damn it, I'm in love with my spouse. How do I deal with this? And in the case of this book specifically, Luz's reason for this is a pretty standard inheritance clause thing, which is that she can't access some of her assets without them being signed off by a legal guy selected by her family who has gone missing or by her husband because her parents have both died and she's kind of left running the family business and she wants access to the assets she's supposed to get as inheritance. But because, you know, patriarchy, she needs a guy to sign off of it. And the guy who's like supposed to be the legal person for her family has just vanished off into Europe and she has no idea where he went. Or she could get a husband to sign off on it. And she's like, well, a husband would be pretty convenient in this case. And in Evan's life, he is trying to get legal control of the land that his whiskey distillery is housed on. And his deceased mother left that to him as a wedding gift. So he can't actually own it until he gets married. 
And both of them, because of this, decide that it would be like a weird legal situation could be solved by them getting married because it would help them with their businesses. They're also just super into each other, even though they've only just met. And they they kind of have like some individual baggage that means that they're like, we can't get into like good romantic relationship because we have issues. So like Evan's last girlfriend jumped him to marry his father so she could become a duchess, which like, oof. I feel like that's somehow like a shortcut to like getting an Oedipus complex, like yikes. And then Luz is kind of struggling because her parents have both died and she's been thrust into a position of responsibility in the family business, but she faces a lot of racism and sexism because she's an Afro-Caribbean woman trying to run a business in a racist, sexist, historical time period. And both of them have these individual issues that mean that they can't really acknowledge that they're into each other in a normal way. So they're just like, hey, we should get married for our business reason. That's surely the only reason we should do this. But then of course it's a romance novel. So we know they're gonna actually fall in love and have a happily ever after. It's just kind of like a matter of how they actually confess to each other that they're into each other and that like they enjoy being married for more than just business reasons, which I think is true of a lot of romance novels. Like, you know, the characters are going to end up happily ever after. You just have to enjoy the journey on the way there. It's also very funny in Married to Convenience Romances. They're like, well, uh, we are married. So I guess we should like have sex because we're married. Totally not because we're really into each other, only because we're married. You're like, haha, yeah, sure. That's definitely why. I thought this was pretty fun. I enjoyed it a lot. It wasn't set as much in Paris as I hoped it would be, unfortunately. The first section deals with them being at the World's Fair, but then they travel to Edinburgh, where Evan's family and his business is located. And Edinburgh is also a cool city, and I once did like a whole historical research paper on it, but I did think that the Paris World's Fair setting was really fun, and I wish it had been explored a tiny bit more, but I also thought it was really cool and it was like a setting in general, so I enjoyed that part of the book. What I thought was specifically interesting about the Paris World Fair is that both Luz and Evan run alcohol businesses, which was a deliberate selection by the author of a type of business they could run without getting their money from like colonialism and the slave trade, which I thought was super interesting. Like Evan's distillery is located in Scotland and it's like run by employees who live and work there. It's like a family business that like does all of its stuff in Scotland, does not rely on like slave trade or taking money from other countries. And Luz's business is one that is run by like her family over the last couple of generations and is like trying to like help people uh, gain money and is kind of like trying to be like an equal business that gives people shares of the stocks and stuff like that. So I really like this was a romance novel that's like my protagonists are going to be rich, but they are not going to get their money from the slave trade or colonialism or even have like familial money that they want to use that comes from that. So I thought that was really interesting. This is definitely the part where you can tell that we are people who are studying history because I also thought this part was really interesting. My qualms that come with reading historical romance is that when you have rich people in history, they likely got their money through a bad way. Like not necessarily by profiting off of the transatlantic slave trade. Sometimes they just like exploit people in their own countries. So dukes, if they have money because they're rich, it's probably not like a good source. But this book does something from the very start, which is that it commits to establishing that both the characters are business owners who get their money in ethical ways, especially Luz's family. is She's from an Afro-Caribbean family Actually, I think her mom was Afro-Caribbean and her father was Scottish, which is why she has ties to Scotland. But they like want to ethically run a business that like pays people equally and just is not involved in like countries that profit off the slave trade. And Evan similarly is like, I want to be ethical in my business and treat people well and pay people. And like, I thought that was actually really interesting. 
because I think sometimes it goes a little bit unsaid where it's like, don't think about where the money comes from in this historical romance novel. Just enjoy the romance and the the parties and the descriptions of ball gowns. But I think this one, by virtue of being a historical romance novel that centers an Afro-Caribbean character, is like, actually, we are going to have to tackle racism and the unethical and horrifying ways that people acquired lots of money in the past by like establishing that these characters are really committed to not doing that. Like Evan has abolitionists in his family and he's like I get money from that side of my family and like reject my terrible father who doesn't care about this kind of thing and I think the way that it engaged with terrible historical realities while still being like a fun historical romance novel was an interesting balance Uh, the history parts of it were like really compelling and interesting to me especially the real life inspiration of the 1889 world's fair and the like history of Dominicans going there to sell goods which is what inspired Luz's character I also liked that Evan is not like a clueless white man who needs to be educated on all things related to racism by Luz because he actually has black family members because like his family is like pretty big and sprawling and he has a lot of cousins and some of them married into like black families or are from abroad so he's like already somewhat familiar with this and isn't like oh man racism what do you mean that that's a thing that exists so I just thought that was nice because I think sometimes in historical romance novels it's like people back then were just all white all the time in England and this one's like actually no even Scottish dukes can be related to like family members from South America and the Caribbean and stuff so those were two things that I really liked that was like obviously the author looking at the setting that she was using and the historical time period and being like how can I make these characters exist within this framework, but also kind of reject some of the unspoken things about like money and privilege and racism that are not always talked about in the genre. So that was one thing I really liked about this book. But it is also still like a fun romance novel. It's not a story about the horrors of colonialism and slavery. It's like these characters are carving out happiness and success and love and communities that support them in a time period that like is hostile to them. But it's like ultimately still a story that's like, it's a fun romance novel. People wear ball gowns, they go to parties, they drink champagne. Like characters of color are allowed to exist in historical fiction and have stories that are not all about suffering. But it's like, it's a story that is also not blind to the realities of history and the way that people acquired money. Like there's, you can write a historical romance novel and not really engage in bad stuff in history and just be like, I'm going to write a fun frolic story. And I think that's like totally valid. But also I do like that this story, it felt very grounded and like the characters' identities shape the story. Like Luz's story is very much shaped by her being Dominican and being in Europe in a time when like people are racist. But also like it's not just a story about suffering and unhappiness and racism. It's like, it's still a fun romance novel about like characters that meet and have chemistry and like engaging with traditional romance novel tropes, but it's very much doing it like in a way that is very influenced by the protagonist's identity. I really enjoyed Luz as a protagonist in particular. I love female characters who are allowed to be like a little bit bossy and opinionated and like maybe even a bit calculating and are like not punished by the narrative and in fact have a love interest who are like, man, you're like so efficient and cool. I love you. Let's totally run a business together. So I really liked that character. She's super determined and she knows what she wants both in business and in romance. And she like she's not afraid to go out and get it, but she also has vulnerabilities and flaws and she has like a community of friends that support her and I just enjoyed her as a protagonist a lot. She also always carries a pistol and a flask of alcohol which I personally think is iconic behavior. No that was such a great detail. She just like pull out a flask of alcohol and be like anyone want some? Or like someone will try to threaten her and she'd be like well I do have a pistol strapped to my thigh and I'm just like love it. Great character detail. 
I also enjoyed Evan. He, in the fine tradition of many historical romance novels, has a lot of daddy issues, but frankly, I don't blame him because I would also have issues if my ex-girlfriend dumped me to marry my dad, who was already a horrible person. That whole thing just made it, like, worse. So, you know, at this point, I was like, you know what? I respect you. Sometimes characters' familial issues in romance novels could feel a bit forced, but in this case, I do not blame you for being kind of messed up by that. He also just, like, in general, drinks his respect women juice and really enjoys watching Luz be, like, bossy and run her business really efficiently and have, like, grand plans to expand business. And it was just kind of fun to watch them interact in that. That was great. He really is drawn to Luz because she is so determined and knows what she wants and he's never like oh you can marry me and because i'm a rich duke you can retire your business and become a stay-at-home mom he's like no i love your ambition i love your drive i love that you don't let people tell you what to do i will support you in this so i just appreciated that it's never a story in which Luz has to like sacrifice her ambitions or her career in order to get married and find love it's like both evan and the novel love that about her and it's an integral part of her story and like that's what makes her compelling to the male lead character like he's not intimidated by the fact that she's a woman who knows what she wants he's like i like that about you you are in this world will get what you want even if people don't like want you to and he appreciates about her that about her i thought that was just a good detail we love that this also does a pretty common thing in romance novels which is that it very much sets up that this is the first book in a series and there will be sequels that follow. So this book is about Luz and Evan and their marriage of convenience and being like, oh no, we have married for business reasons, but now we have actual feelings, help. But also I think it's pretty clear that the sequels will follow Luz's two friends, Manuela and Aurora. I really liked that Luz has a group of supportive female friends because she's part of a group of three women who are nicknamed Las Leonas because they're Latina women who went to the same boarding school in Europe and people sort of grouped them together and gave them a little nickname. And their friendship is like an important part of Luz's life because her parents are both dead and she has a younger sister that she's trying to support and she's trying to run a business in a world that's very hostile to her. But she has these two friends that you can sort of fall back on for support. Not to talk about just like romance and stuff, but to just sort of gain support and solidarity in her real life. And I think the sequels are presumably going to follow them, which I think is fun because it sort of sets up like who future installments are going to follow. There are an awful lot of characters in this book because Luz has her friends and her family and then Evan has his friends and his family, which I think is partly to set up future books, but also it just makes the world the characters exist in feel very fleshed out and there's like this web of relationships that they exist in that isn't just their romance like evan has two sisters and he's very close with them and they sort of like mercilessly roast him about his romantic life and then he has a brother and a cousin and a business partner and it was kind of like a lot to keep track of but i think it also made the world feel very fleshed out and diverse and like these characters existed as individual people not just as like two little dolls to put together and make a kiss like it felt like they came fully formed from like backgrounds and other interpersonal relationships and also Evan just has a very epically dramatic family and it was kind of fun watching that unfold yeah there's definitely a lot of characters in this book especially on Evan's side he has so many cousins I could not keep track of them and then like his siblings are married and his siblings have spouses and kids and I was like help help I need like a list of characters uh but I typically like that both of these characters are really devoted to their families and they have like really strong bonds with them and even Evan who does not get along at all with his horrible father is really close with his siblings and brother and cousin and it's also kind of fun to read a romance novel and you encounter some like well-formed and intriguing and interesting side characters who have like perhaps a little bit of tension and you're like aha I see the protagonists of the future installments so that's always kind of fun to like watch out and keep an eye out for and I think I have pinned down who at least two of the protagonists of the other books will be we'll see if I'm right 
I want to read the book about Evan's older half-brother so bad because the amount of drama on that man's backstory is like, oof, I cannot wait to see that unpacked. It's, it's gonna wild. Be it's one of those, like, my father was married before he met my mom and he had this kid, they didn't want to acknowledge him, but the kid is back and wants revenge. And I was like, aha, I see a protagonist in the making. This book has a lot of plot drama going on, like, besides marriage of convenience, because Evan is also kind of plotting to take down his horrible duke father and like expose him for a liar and a fraud and like get his due inheritance while also marrying Luz and trying to like run their businesses together and settle into like a marriage of convenience that maybe is an actual marriage so there's a lot going on but I did enjoy that it wasn't just like the drama is only about the romance it's also like interpersonal drama and familial drama and like all sort of stuff going on that made for a very compelling read. I also personally appreciated that because there are these other threads of family and other sources of drama in this book there isn't like sort of the standard third act breakup that I've come to expect from romance which is a genre convention you'll have a moment where characters sort of lose everything and their relationship disintegrates but then they'll get back together at the end and because the whole plot of a romance novel is really built around the evolution of a character's relationship like it does make sense because all books sort of need a lost everything moment before the climax when it seems like things are really bad as bad as they can get and then characters like rally and the book ends on a happy note but i i find it it's like one thing that i don't enjoy reading over and over and over again because i'm like man can you just like talk about it so i kind of appreciated that because there is this whole revenge plot involving evan's family and his extended fatherly drama stuff I think the author managed to find other sources of tension to have come to ahead at the climax of the novel other than Luz and Evan's relationship and I just like that because it's nice to see a romance novel that sort of subverts the traditional genre convention tropes like Luz and Evan's relationship is more about like slowly becoming emotionally vulnerable with each other rather than like ah we misheard something and now we're breaking up but we'll get back together at the end which is like, you know, that's a genre convention in romance novels. I understand why people do it, but it was refreshing to not have that happen in this book. Yeah, there is a moment near the end of the book where, like, Luz learns that Evan has not been entirely truthful about some stuff regarding his family drama and the plans that he has to, like, take down his awful father. And I think if she wanted to, the author could have made it, like, a big blowout. You are no longer my husband. I'm getting divorced as soon as possible. I hate you. We're leaving moment but instead she was like actually there's this other drama going on that's going to come to a head and lose and everyone are going to get involved in that and like their relationship will make it through and she'll be like a little annoyed that he didn't tell her everything but the real problem is this thing over here instead and i thought that worked pretty well because you're like oh man drama what's gonna happen something's happening but you're not like oh god can you guys just talk to each other and like communicate about it so i was pleased by that personally Oh, another thing that I enjoyed about this book was that it's a historical romance novel that has really frank discussions about birth control and like female pleasure, which I kind of liked because sometimes they don't address birth control in historical romance novels. And then I'm like, oh God, you aren't married yet. What if something happens? But this one is just like, we are going to address it. And I was like, yay, love that detail. That I personally just enjoyed that. Me too, because sometimes characters romance novels are like, we don't want children yet, but we're having sex. And I was like, hang on a second, those two things are, are counterproductive to each other. But this one, they actually sat down and like had a conversation about it, and that was nice. And also the fact that the male lead is like, I also understand you don't want children immediately, and I respect that, so I will take steps to ensure that doesn't happen. And I was like, we love men who do the basic minimum in romance novels, but also it wasn't really the basic minimum because he like thought ahead, and I appreciated that. 
Oh, I also thought the author's note in this book was cool because it talks about the historical inspiration of Dominicans at the World's Fair and the kind of research that she did, like what parts of history she used and what parts she changed. And I personally am a history nerd. And when I was a child reading historical fiction novels, I would always immediately turn the historical note at the back after I was done reading and then like read the whole thing. So I was glad the author included this because I thought it was really fun to hear about the research that she did and her inspiration for the story in general. Overall, I think this was a pretty fun novel, and I will be reading the future ones in the installments. I liked that it was a historical romance novel centering a strong but complicated and interesting Afro-Caribbean lead. I thought that Evan drank Respect Woman Juice, and I enjoyed that. I think the characters that are being set up as the future protagonists of further installments intrigued me, and I definitely want to see how their relationships will go down. So I'm glad this is out there as like an addition to the historical romance novel canon, because I enjoyed it. Overall is a thumbs up from me. So the next book we're going to be talking about is The Siren of Sussex by Mimi Matthews. This is a romance novel set in 1862 in London, which is the Victorian era, directly after the time that Prince Albert died. It follows Evelyn Maltravers, the daughter of a gentleman who is not incredibly wealthy, but she is seeking a good marriage to support her younger sisters and her family, and Ahmad Malik, a British Indian tailor and dressmaker who dreams of owning his own shop someday. This book stood out to me when I first heard about it because unlike a lot of other romance novels, the two main characters are not extremely rich and white British nobles. Instead, Evelyn's family, while not like super poor, are not super rich and are not really considered a proper match for landed gentry. And Ahmad is an immigrant from India who owns his own business and is kind of trying to work his way up in the world. And so Evelyn hires Ahmad to design her some riding habits in order to impress young men in London because she's a better horsewoman than a dancer or a conversationalist. And so she hopes to find a husband by impressing people with her riding instead. I feel like character A hires character B to help them find a spouse and then they end up falling in love instead is a fairly common romance trope, but it's one that I enjoy a lot, so I was really pleased that this one ended up happening in this book. I feel like it's sort of a variation on the Cyrano trope where like there is two characters and like one of them is helping the other one find love, but then doesn't end up really going the way that you expected, which is sort of fun. It can be a good conflict being like, oh, I want you to succeed at your goal and find a match, but also I don't want you to succeed because I'm in love with you. Like tasty drama. So as Ahmad designs Evelyn's riding habits and dresses, the two end up falling in love, but they face a lot of barriers to their relationship based off of like race, class, wealth, stuff like that, but they have to kind of surmount in order to get their happy ending, which they think they do in a fairly satisfying way. I always do find it a little tedious when the romantic conflict in books is either silly miscommunication or daddy issues or something like that, because I think those can get overused in historical romance novels. I'm like, okay, we get it. The Duke has issues with his father, and that means he has trouble being emotionally vulnerable. I get it. I've read this before. But in this case, I felt like the barriers to their relationship felt very real, because Evelyn really does need to marry a wealthy man in order to support her family. Her older sister already ran off and had an unsuitable match. The burden has really fallen onto her shoulders to marry well and basically keep her family from out of poverty. And also their relationship is sort of the obstacle is that Ahmed is of a lower class than her, but he's also of Indian descent. So the idea of a white British woman marrying a guy who's of British Indian descent is like seen as a big no-no in the eyes of society. And there's a fair amount of discussion of imperialism and the British Empire's colonial rule of India in this book because Ahmad, he resides in England during this book, but he was born in India and his mother was Indian and his father was a white British guy. So he kind of is aware of the complications that it can arise from um, interracial relationship because his parents 
relationship did not end well and his mother was very unhappy because of it and he's kind of like I don't want to subject someone to that because I have seen the difficulties that can arise from that kind of relationship but I think the two of them like there is an undeniable spark between them from the minute they meet and they sort of can't deny that they feel an attraction but also like they feel like they understand each other. I also liked that Evelyn doesn't really expect Ahmed to like educate her on racism or his culture and instead she like decides to go do her own research to better understand him. So there's like a scene where she goes to a bookstore to try and find a book on Indian history to read and she only settles for one that's not written by an English person because she's like I actually want to hear what Indian people have to say about India so I can understand Ahmad better. I'm not going to read some like colonials text by an in like a, a British person who went to India. So they really like want to understand each other and support each other which I liked. Ahmed understands why Evelyn is here in London and he's sort of a confidant for her as well as someone who's just making her dresses because he knows why this is so important to her. But also that means that he understands like why it would be so bad if they acted on their attraction to each other. But also it is a romance novel with a happy ending so I don't really think it's a spoiler to say that like even though there are barriers to their relationship they're not insurmountable and Evelyn and Ahmed do end up having a pretty happy ending which yay! Yeah, I think a lot of romance novels, like we said, don't really concern themselves with either people of lower classes or the colonial history of the British Empire. So I really appreciated this book explored both of them. I feel like most romance novels, often the closest that they engage with like class stuff is like, alas, my family is landed gentry, but grandfather spent too much money, so I must marry a duke in order to keep ourselves in the proper style. And this one's like, we literally don't have enough money, and my older sister ran off in like this horrible scandalous thing where she married some guy he wasn't suitable so like I have to marry well or else that's it for my family and then there's like you said a fair amount of exploration of Ahmad's own background as a British Indian guy and like the barriers that he faces to his romance with Evelyn but also the barriers that he faces in like his own profession and trying to advance himself as a professional dressmaker and I think this was explored in like a way that felt realistic but also not like super incredibly depressing dark and heavy it's like these factors are here but it's also a romance novel so we're going to give you like a happy ending for these characters which I did appreciate. I also really liked that Evelyn and Ahmad both felt like well-rounded characters with relationships and interests besides their romance because I think it's really important that the characters don't feel like blank slates who had no interests or relationships until they met each other. And in this case, Evelyn has like a great love of horses. Her family breeds horses and she has like a really beloved horse that she rides a lot and has brought to London with her. And Ahmad had his, has his tailoring business, which he's super devoted to. And he's really interested specifically in making dresses. He works as a tailor at the beginning of the book, but he really wants to work as a dressmaker instead because that's where his passion actually lies. And so he kind of hopes that by designing Evelyn a lot of like beautiful and well-recognizable riding habits that he can wear while trying to find a husband, people might become more aware of his work and be like, aha, we should hire this man to make ball gowns and stuff. So the two of them both have like these very specific interests. And they also felt very well-researched and important aspects of the novel. Like I got the sense that the author did a lot of research on like horse riding and riding habits and like what Victorian fashions looked like and how they evolved while writing this book. And it definitely stood out in both of their characters. It really felt like they had things going on in their lives and their interests besides just each other. Also, the descriptions of Ahmad's dresses that he made for Evelyn were just really pretty. And I was like, I want this as a movie or a TV show so I can see the nice outfits he's made her because they just really come to life off of the page, which I think because it's a central aspect of the book, you really have to devote time to exploring like their relationship through the clothing that he makes her and the fact that he understands like what colors will flatter her and what kind of cuts she wants and the attention that he pays to her both as someone who like is you know completing a job but also as someone who like 
sort of comes to care for her and is like, I want you to look good and I, I know it will make you look good. And just like, I like that. I feel like the dressmaking aspect of this was just very well done and I could visualize it very well. There's also a part where another character advocates for their relationship by saying that Ahmed sews pockets into all of Evelyn's dresses without being asked, which like, honestly, that is the height of romance. If a man did that to me, I would like propose on the spot. Literally, Evelyn wears glasses, so he's like, I'll sew you a little pocket in all of your dresses where you can put your glasses and you're not wearing them. And I was like, this is so thoughtful. I love this. Like, first of all, dresses with pockets. Excellent. Second of all, a man who understands the importance of dresses with pockets. Excellent. Like, I think it just did a very good job of, like, these characters are not only, like, they don't just find each other physically attractive and there isn't just a spark of attraction between the two of them, but it's like they really care about the other one and think about them. And just the ways that they think about each other when they're not with each other was just very sweet. Like Evelyn going to the bookstore, Ahmed adding pockets to her dress without being asked, like the way they do these little things for each other because they care about the other person. They're not expecting to be rewarded for it. They just do these things because they're like, I think I know what would make you happy and I'm going to do that for you. Yeah, it's just generally really sweet. I like romance novels where it's not like, this person is so passionately hot, I must make out with him immediately. We have only like a physical connection. I like romance novels where it's like, I am attracted to you, but I also like you as a person and I enjoy spending time with you. And I think this book really nailed that. However, I would like to say that I have the hots for you, but also now I'm realizing that we connect at an emotional level is also a good trope. And we will talk about that in our episode on A Restless Truth because it does that trope excellently. But that's <laughs> not the point of this episode. Evelyn also develops a circle of female friends in London who are some other women who are like slightly outside of higher circles of society who are also really into horse riding. And I liked that she had like a group of female friends to talk about rather than just spending all of her time like at balls interacting with people that she didn't like. They're also all pretty fun characters who I think are going to be the protagonists of the sequels, which I definitely want to read. Apparently the sequel to this involves a marriage of convenience and a haunted estate in Yorkshire, to which I say yes to both of those. Yeah, as soon as they mentioned this guy who has like a dramatic past, he's a war veteran, and they were like, oh, I hear that his house out in the Yorkshire is haunted. I was like, haunted house, haunted house, let's go. Yeah, he also meets Evelyn at the bookstore scene where she's looking for like some books to buy and gives her a couple of recommendations. And I was like, he was well read and he has a haunted house. I'm definitely reading the sequel. So that was fun. I like when romance novels can kind of like deftly set up the protagonists of the other books in a way that makes you want to learn more about them. And this definitely succeeded at that. One other part of the historical setting I really liked about this book was there was a lot about the Victorian obsession with spiritualism and ghosts, and that part was very fun. It's not directly related to the romance, but it made the world feel like fleshed out and well-researched, because like you said, Prince Albert had recently died prior to the start of the book, and Evelyn's uncle and the woman supporting her debut because she's staying with family in London are both like obsessed with contacting the ghost of Prince Albert. So there's some really funny scenes of Evelyn being extremely skeptical of the existence of ghosts, but not wanting to offend the people who are helping her debut into society. So she ends up having to go to these balls hosted by spiritualists. And they're also kind of places where Ahmed and Evelyn can spend time together because they're not like a traditional society ball. There's an element of sort of, woo, ghosts and spiritualism. And there's sort of a place where people of different classes can mix. And I think the Victorian obsession with death and ghosts and spiritualism is really interesting. And I love that that was a part of this book because it just made it feel very well-researched and grounded in the Victorian time period. Not just like, oh, they wear Victorian clothing and they go to balls. But it's like, yeah, Victorians were also kind of morbid and obsessed with death. And also it was just like very good comedic relief because Evelyn's like, I don't believe in ghosts, but I also really don't want to offend the people who are being nice and like hosting my debut. So I'll pretend that I believe in ghosts. 
Yeah, that was hilarious. There are some really funny scenes of her sitting in seances being like, I do not believe a single thing of what is going on right here, but I'm not going to say anything in case I offend anyone. So I enjoyed that aspect a lot. And like you said, the spiritualist balls are kind of like places where unconventional people can group and meet. So like in a regular Victorian ball, it would be kind of scandalous for a woman to be like dancing with her dressmaker but in this version it's like not quite as weird so they get to actually hang out and spend some time together outside of him making her clothing overall it was definitely part of the book that i like i think spiritualism in the victorian times is just like a really fascinating aspect of history because like the victorians were all kind of weirdos actually did you know that they're kind of all weird and i like this book leaned into that a little bit it was fun to hear about so unlike other romance novels I've read, this one doesn't actually have any sex scenes. It's basically like Evelyn and Ahmed meet, they fall in love, they kiss a bit, they get married at the end, which I didn't honestly miss that much because I was enjoying the book and the romance enough. I feel like I tend to read romance novels more for like the banter. That's the part that I really enjoy. I like people are like hanging out and like having enjoyable conversations. And I'm honestly also not really sure where the author would have fit in a sex scene anyway, because most of Evelyn and Ahmed's meetings take place at the shop that he works at. And there's like some nice tension where he's like measuring her for a dress and they're like standing very close. And she's like, this man is hot, but he's also working for me. And I don't want to make any moves. But I don't think it was like absolutely necessary for there to be any sex scenes in this book. That's just my opinion though. I thought that romance worked and was pretty convincing even without them. I agree. It's much more about them connecting on an emotional level and also working through the barriers over the relationships because they have to be so cautious that there isn't public knowledge of the fact that their relationship is more than just like patroness and the guy that is being hired to make her gowns. So I think if it had been like, and now they would go have sex, even though both of them like really care about their reputations, I think it would have felt weird for this book because it's so much about them being like, we like each other, but also we are aware of all the barriers in the way of our relationship. So I think the tension really comes from them, like this will they, won't they, can they surmount these societal obstacles? So I, I do think it would have not worked for this book, but it's, I don't think it's like weaker for not including something that is often in romance novels. Which is not to say that I don't think romance novels shouldn't have sex scenes because like most of them do and they can be like quite well written and tell you a lot about the characters and be like fun and enjoyable to read. I think a lot of people who say that they don't think sex scenes are necessary in literature have not like read romance novels so they can like be important to the plot and fun to read about and like reveal important stuff about the characters but in this case I think it like wasn't necessarily what the author wanted to write with romance and I thought that was fine because it didn't feel like it was missing anything by not including that. I think the ending is also very satisfying because they do kind of manage to work through the barriers of race and class and money that were interfering with their relationship. Ahmed's habits and gowns that he makes for Evelyn catch enough attention when she goes out to society to get a lot of commissions and becomes more popular and is able to open his own business. He also makes a lot of mourning clothing for people because everyone's like, ah, oh, the prince just died. We need lots of like fancy mourning clothing because even though we have to wear all black, it doesn't have to be boring. And he's really good at that. And then Evelyn also decides to make money breeding horses. So um, they both kind of have like, they turn their passions into something that they're able to like sustain themselves and they don't have to really care about marrying for money. And I thought that like, it made me happy. Sometimes you just read romance novels and you're like, I'm happy that the ending is happy. Yeah, basically, I feel like this romance novel stood out to me because it kind of breaks the mold of the sort of characters who are most commonly depicted in the genre by talking a bit more frankly about race and class than I see in other romance novels that I read. And also just had a genuinely really compelling relationship where I was like, yeah, I, I totally buy these people love each other. I'm rooting for them to make it work. I, I want them to be happy. I actually like really want a movie of this specifically. I just think it would work really well visually because the horse riding, 
and the dressmaking parts I think would be really good on the screen and I think if you got two actors that had like very good chemistry you'd be like oh forbidden romance I just think it would be good I want this adapted seconded I feel like Bridgerton has proven that there's like a big audience for romance novel adaptations and I think Hollywood would just like go nuts adapt all of them give us all the adaptations but that's just my personal opinion the next book that we're going to talk about is The Queer Principles of Kit Webb by Kat Sebastian. This features Kit Webb, who is a highwayman, and he recently retired after his last job went very badly, and Percy Holland, the son of a terrible duke who wants to rob his father. Kit basically has to teach Percy how to be a highwayman because Kit has a lot of experience robbing people, but he was injured during his last robbery and he can't do it himself anymore because he has like a very bad leg. So this is a heist novel, romance novel, which is a great combination in my opinion. I do love a good like one last job heist book because characters are always like one final heist and I'm out of it. And then of course things never go that simply. So Percy's father, the horrible Duke is kind of a stand-in for the evils of landed British aristocracy. And Percy has recently learned that his father was actually married when he married Percy's mother, meaning that both Percy and his new half-sister, who is the daughter of his father's new wife, his friend Marianne, are illegitimate because Percy's uh, father's wife's original marriage was never dissolved back in France. Which means that this book, Percy really does not like his father, who basically represents like all the evils of the aristocracy, which means this book has really strong eat the rich vibes, and I enjoyed that. But then, of course, Kit and Percy also fall in love while planning to rob the Duke because, of course. I really loved the Eat the Rich vibes in this. I feel like two of the books that we've talked about for this episode, the other one being A Caribbean Heiress in Paris, have like this horrible Duke father who like is a representation of everything evil about landed aristocracy. And like the plot is kind of like taking down that person and like making a better life without relying on their money, which I honestly am here for. I love it when people interrogate how landed aristocracy sucks. And also, in the case of this romance novel, Kit is a bisexual man and Percy is gay. So it sort of plays with like different romance tropes than the previous two books we have read about played with because like A Caribbean Heiress in Paris, it's like two characters can get married and publicly be open about their relationship. Whereas Kit and Percy's relationship is like, this is a historical time period in which you can't exactly be like, hello, father, I am gay. So that's kind of another layer of... Uh, conflict between Percy and his father. Kit's principles, I would essentially say, are that he is bisexual and is fine with being attracted to men, but not rich men, because he meets Percy and is like, Percy's hot, but he's rich. I cannot be attracted to a rich man, which is really funny. I think Kit is kind of like a Robin Hood-like character in that he really likes robbing rich people and hates, like, aristocracy. So he and Percy really get off on the wrong foot because Percy kind of represents everything he hates about British aristocracy in that he's like kind of a brat. He's very like sort of pampered. He doesn't really understand like what Kit has gone through because Kit has a pretty dark backstory that led to him becoming a highwayman. And Kit's like, yeah, okay, fine. Like I, despite this being a time period in which like homosexuality is criminalized, Kit does not really have like a problem with being attracted to men, but he's just like, no, Percy's rich. I can't be attracted to a rich person. This goes against all my principles. I thought that was really funny. I don't think there's anything wrong with historical novels interrogating like historical homophobia and the barriers against gay relationships. And in fact, they can often be very meaningful. But I just really enjoyed the fact that Kit was like totally fine with being attracted to men. He was just like, God damn it, not a rich man. I can't believe that I'm betraying my own principles. He's really hot. It was just very funny. So that was enjoyable a lot. There's also some really good side characters in this book. 
I especially liked Marion, who is Percy's childhood friend, who recently married his horrible Duke father and has like a young daughter with him. She's very ruthless and clever, and she obviously has her own schemes and plans going on throughout the book that only turn up sometimes. She's actually the, the protagonist of the companion novel to this, which I have read and Lulu hasn't, but she's really enjoyable. I love a good female character who is like mean and scheming. I think they're fun. And so I liked Marion a lot. There's also Betty, the maid who helps run Kit's coffee house that he bought with his robbery money, who's kind of like very no-nonsense and like wants to know all the gossip about what Kit is doing. I enjoyed her a lot. I would read a spin-off novel about Betty, I'm just saying. Yeah, she's from a family of fences, so Kit will rob people and then she will use her family connections to sell the stolen goods. And I know that this is, I think, part of a two-book series with the sequel following Marion, but I also would really read a Betty book because I think she's just an interesting character. I seriously can't emphasize enough how much the plot of this book is about the evils of inherited wealth and landed aristocracy. Like, it is, I think, first and foremost a romance novel, but like the second thing that it's doing is being like, I want you to sit down and think about how dukes are evil, which, you know what, I'm, I'm down to do that. I'll do that. Kit's backstory and the reason that he became a highwayman is basically all about this. It's about like evil people who are rich can do bad things to you and they can ruin your life and they can punish you in ways that you didn't deserve and they can get away with it because they're rich and the only way that you can get back at them is if say you become a highwayman and you rob them so that's kind of what kit's backstory is and the reason why he doesn't trust landed aristocracy and rich people is that like he is familiar with like how rich people can just like utterly ruin your life for no reason they can like give you say a really harsh punishment for hunting on their lands even though you were starving and the winter was bad and you did the food and they'll just do it and then go on with their life and like it means nothing to them so this book is like pretty seriously set on being like maybe the aristocracy is bad it's also set in the 18th century not the 19th which i think is a bit unusual for historical romance but I thought that kind of change up was pretty fun. I have a theory that the reason uh, there aren't as many romance novels set in the 18th century is that people don't think that the fashion back then was sexy, especially the wigs, and therefore there are more set in like the Regency era. Uh, also because of Jordan Hire and Jane Austen, but also I think simply because people looked at the wig and they were like, that is not sexy. I cannot make that sexy. I did enjoy all of the elaborate descriptions of Percy's wigs and clothing though because Percy is very much a rich guy who cares a lot about his appearance so there are a lot of lengthy descriptions of the outfits he's wearing that to my modern eyes I was just like this sounds really ugly actually <laughs> yeah I was like are you sure that's supposed to be nice looking that sounds terrible actually I did think it was fun that this was set in the 18th century though because I took a like a combo English history class on queer literature of the 18th century so I actually know like a fair amount about it and it was nice to be like look a romance novel about queer people in the 18th century because they did exist back then and people were gay and had relationships so it was like fun to like see a little bit of evidence of that in a historical romance novel although I feel like I have even more thoughts on the history of queer people in the 18th century but I'll not get into that right now I just know a lot more about it than was mentioned in this book. Interestingly the big conflict between Kit and Percy is sort of them trying to figure out if there's a way for them to be together because of the huge class divide between them, not necessarily because of their gender. Just because both of them are like fairly comfortable with their sexualities and Kit already knows what it's like to sort of lead a bit of a double life because he is a highwayman, but also he currently runs a coffee shop. So both of them are like kind of fine with being attracted to people of the same gender, but they're like, you're really rich and I'm really poor. This is the divide in our relationship. But I think there's sort of an interesting way that the power dynamics are handled in this because a lot of the book 
is Percy realizing that not only does he personally find his father unpleasant, his father is also systematically a terrible person who gets his money through really unethical means and is awful to like the tenants that work his land. So Kit's whole character arc is kind of like deciding to reject the aristocratic background that he comes from and sort of joining Kit on his crusade against nobles. Which means like there is kind of this like very much opposites attract vibe going on, both in terms of like their goals in life and their backgrounds, but also because Percy is sort of very dramatic and outwardly carefree and Kit is kind of grouchier and quieter, but they find that they end up working well as a team to rob people. And then of course there is some romantic attraction between the two of them. But I thought it was interesting that like crux of the novel is more about like finding a way to navigate like their incredibly different class backgrounds rather than the fact that they are two men in a time period in which being gay could very much get you in huge trouble. Yeah, I did also think that was interesting, but it also like is true that it would be super hard to have a long-term romantic relationship with someone whose life is like so completely different from yours because you're from such different classes and have such different backgrounds and values. But I thought this book managed to navigate it in a way that like I think made sense and like wasn't unrealistic. And when they worked things out at the end, I was like, yeah, that makes sense as an illusion. Like, hope you're happy. Uh so I thought that was a way that the book had like essential conflict in the romance that wasn't necessarily about like internalized or outward homophobia. It was more like, even though we're two guys, but actually the biggest barrier that we're faced to our relationship is not that. It's like, how can we reconcile the fact that we come from totally different worlds? But I think the fact that they're both very enthusiastic about robbing people probably helped bond them a little bit, I think. Also, you mentioned earlier really liking the banter in romance novels, and I really did like the banter in this because it feels like it is genuinely a funny book. I think a lot of romance novels, you know, there's romance, but there's not necessarily comedy. Not all romance novels are rom-coms, but I do feel like this had comedy elements because there's just the clash of Percy and Kit's personalities, and that leads to a lot of, like, entertaining conversations between the two of them. I think as, as a novel, it does deal with, like, some kind of heavy topics, like, Kit's acquired disability or like the evils of British landed aristocracy or the fact that like there is sort of this threat of homophobia that has hung over Percy his whole life but also there are like a lot of parts that are genuinely really funny and I enjoyed the, the banter between the two of them and sort of the way they play off of each other. Yeah it was just really enjoyable. I had a really fun time reading all the scenes where the characters were hanging out planning the robbery and they were like what is the best way we can just like ruin the life of this terrible duke and also we're falling in love along the way. It was just I love a good heist novel and I love a good romance novel. This is a romance heist novel so like really it's a perfect combination. Also there was one particular funny thing that kept happening while I was reading this because I have a friend named Percy who was visiting when I was reading this and I kept being like, oh my god, Percy is such an idiot when I was reading this book and reacting out loud. And then I'd be like, no, not you, Percy. I'm talking about fictional Percy, which was sort of funny. That was very funny. I have read the sequel to this book, which is called The Perfect Crimes of Marion Hayes. and is about murder and more about how the aristocracy is bad and about like a little bit of enemies to lovers romance going on there. And also maybe blackmail letters that turn into romance letters are romantic actually. And I thought it was really fun. I enjoyed it a lot. I think that was the conclusion of the series, which is only two books unlike other romance novels, which are usually three or more. But overall, I thought it was really fun. And I am trying to convince Lulu that she should be The Perfect Crimes of Mary and Hayes very soon if possible. I will. It just isn't available at my local library. <laughs> That's a tragedy. Your local library needs to get their act together. Basically, I would say that this is not the first book that I've read by Kat Sebastian. I've read a couple of her novellas, but I think this has like firmly cemented me as a Kat Sebastian fan, and I will read anything else that she publishes going forward, I think. 
seconded. So the next book we're going to be talking about is The Duke Who Didn't by Courtney Milan, which is an extremely funny and delightful novel about Jeremy Yu, a duke who has been secretly coming to the small town of Wedgford in disguise for years and is now trying to figure out how to tell both the entire town and the girl that he's in love with that he is the duke who owns the whole town. Chloe Fong, the other protagonist, is a very no-nonsense, ambitious young woman who fell in love with Jeremy while seeing him every year at the Wedgford Trials, which is a festival hosted in the town, but told him she needed him to be serious if they're going to be together. And so Jeremy vanished for three years, realized that he is incapable of being serious, and has come back to woo Chloe anyway and see if they can make things work, while also trying to figure out the tiny problem that he's been lying to her for as long as he knew her. Basically, this book is a delight. I loved it every page. It was so good. It's so fun. I was just smiling while reading the whole thing. It's very funny, but also very heartfelt, and the romance between Chloe and Jeremy is just a complete delight to read. It's set in the town of Wedgford, which is a small town in England, and it's the location of the Wedgford Trials, which is essentially a yearly scavenger hunt that's a very famous tradition and it brings in a lot of tourists. So Jeremy, kind of incognito, not telling people that he was the Duke, would come to Wedgford each year for the Wedgford Trials, and that's when he met Chloe and they sort of became childhood friends who then fell in love. But now that he's an adult, he's like, uh-oh, I've sort of been lying to everyone because I am actually the Duke who owns this entire town. And I don't really know how to tell people that. So he comes back to Wedgford as an adult to kind of try to tell Chloe his true identity. But also he's kind of like, ah, once I tell her this, like all of our happiness might be ruined. So that's a bit of the tension going on there. I really liked this book had a lot of thoughtfully incorporated racial diversity. Both of the main characters are of Chinese descent and Wedgford is a really racially diverse town with a lot of immigrants from all over, especially China. I really liked how the community was portrayed and I thought it had like a pretty realistic explanation for how all this group of immigrants ended up in Wedgford and managed to make it their town and kind of like their community. It didn't feel anachronistic. I was like, yeah, I feel like the explanation you gave could totally happen. And it was just really fun to read a book about like a community of people from all over the world who have come together in this town and they host like this ridiculous scavenger hunt and they're all kind of joined together by this shared community and like their ancestry and they like just it's really nice to read a book that's set in historical England but is not totally full of white people. So I just really like that that was part of this book. So I mentioned that Jeremy's storyline is kind of trying to fess up about his true identity as the Duke, but Chloe has her own storyline, which is that her father, who is an immigrant from China, helped some guys make a sauce and then they stole the recipe. And Chloe and her father have decided that they are going to make a really good sauce themselves, sell it at the trial and become like rich and famous based off of that. And that's inspired by the real history of Worcestershire sauce, I think, which I believe was inspired by some sauce from South Asia, but I don't really know that much about Worcestershire sauce. So Chloe's whole subplot, <laughs> there's like a really funny storyline about Chloe trying to come up with the perfect name for the unnamed sauce that Chloe and her father have invented because they want to sell it at the Wedgford trials and they've been perfecting the recipe and fermenting it and taste testing it and tweaking the recipe. And they're like, we will have our revenge on the guys who stole my father's recipe and we'll show them and become like really rich and sell lots of sauce at the trials, but we need the perfect name for the sauce and we have not found one yet. So there's just this like very funny running joke of people trying to come up with a good sauce name and failing miserably for a lot of the book that I thought was really funny. The sauce is just called Unnamed Sauce, capital U, capital S, for like a big part of the book, and it's really funny. I have never read a romance novel that talks this much about sauce, but I really enjoyed it as a plotline. Also, aside from the sauce, Chloe's father is a really good cook, and the food descriptions in this made me 
so hungry. The descriptions of the noodles. I was like, I just had lunch, but I want more lunch, specifically the noodles from this book and nothing else. Also, the fact that Chloe's father keeps kind of trying to test Jeremy's devotion to Chloe by his, like intentionally giving Jeremy really, really, really spicy food and being like, if you're devoted to my daughter, you will eat these noodles and not complain was also a very funny running joke in this book. It was hilarious. I just really love that this book had such a strong relationship between Chloe and her father. Her mom isn't in the picture and she's been raised by her dad her whole life. And they just had like this really sweet, supportive relationship where they're like working together on the sauce and they want the best for each other. And like Chloe is like really attentive to her father's needs. And he's like, Chloe, you gotta slow down and stop trying to do everything on your own. It was just really nice to read a romance novel that also had like a really strong father-daughter relationship at the center of it. It was just like a very sweet part of the book. They have their issues and they argue sometimes and they have different ideas about how to do things. Like at the end of the day, they both love each other a lot. It was just really nice to read about. Chloe and Jeremy's romance is also really great because they are kind of foils to each other. Chloe is very organized and kind of introverted and basically has to have this whole character arc about learning that it's okay to rely on other people and ask for help because she sort of told herself her whole life I have to be organized and independent I can't depend on anyone else I have to get things done whereas Jeremy is kind of like sillier he is from a rich family so he hasn't really faced as many hardships as Chloe has in terms of like money but he also has had his life affected by the fact that his father is white and his mom is Chinese and the white side of his family kind of sees him as unsuitable so he finds like real community in Wedgford each year because he is from like such a white aristocratic background that like there aren't really people like him in his father's family which is where he spends most of the year so coming to Wedgford is sort of like a place where he can find community but also as characters they're sort of opposites but they also complement each other very well because they kind of balance each other's personalities. Jeremy sort of gets Chloe to loosen up a little bit whereas Chloe kind of gets Jeremy to stop turning everything into a joke and handle things seriously and I just liked that it was really sweet to see how their personalities balance each other very well and it was like, they they are attracted to each other, but also their personalities gel really well. I loved the romance in this book. It was just so good. And I enjoyed all their interactions so much. I was like reading this whole book and smiling the entire time. Like you said, they're both really good foils for each other. I love characters who like on the surface seem like totally different, like they have nothing in common and like, what would they ever see in each other? But then you put them in the same room and they like actually get along really well and complement each other, kind of balance each other out. And Chloe and Jeremy definitely fall on that spectrum. I also like the fact that this is a romance novel where like the male lead has like fallen hard and is like not quiet about that fact and is like, I am madly in love with this woman and I want her to like take me seriously and I'm going to like tell her that I respect her and I think she's awesome and she's really cool because I I'm not a fan of romance novels where the love interest is like, I must be like cold and closed off and emotionally distant because I have issues. So I just really liked that this version Jeremy was like, I'm keeping some secrets from Chloe, but I also like really want her to know that I care about her a lot and I think she's awesome and she's like the best person ever. Also, even though Chloe had sort of rejected him in the past, it doesn't really feel like a story where he just wears her down. It's more like they have to kind of meet each other in the middle and kind of learn to be emotionally healthy. Chloe has to sort of learn that she can rely on other people and Jeremy has to learn that he can sort of open up to other people and not just be like the fun jokester character because he is very silly and funny but also he has to learn how to be genuinely emotionally sincere over the course of the book and show to Chloe that he really does care about her and his feelings are not something that will change. Also can I just talk about how great the use of the and there was only one bed trope was in this book? <laughs> Please do. It is genuinely one of the best ones that I've ever encountered. 
So, and there was only one bed is kind of another one of the like forced proximity romance tropes. And it is basically what it sounds like on the tin. Like characters will be forced to share a bed and be like, wow, we are so close to each other. And it's used to kind of build like romantic tension and like the tension of characters being physically attracted to each other, but like in a small space. I think it is also something that I feel like is often used in books that aren't romance novels because it's a good way, like as a shortcut to be like, these characters are like, interested in each other and there's like tension but there's like a really funny part where chloe and jeremy are traveling and chloe's like listen if we reach an end tonight and there's only one room and we have to share a bed that's fate telling us we should sleep together but then when they get there it turns out that there are like plenty of rooms at the end and chloe's like you know what actually i've decided that i like want to have sex so i'm going to ask this innkeeper to tell us there's only one bed and jeremy's like i don't really know what's going on here but like i'm rolling with it and i thought that was just really funny because it was kind of an example of an author who is aware of a trope in a meta level and is like sort of making fun of it in the book, but like not in a mean hearted way. It's just like, this is a really contrived situation. So I will have the characters contrive to make this situation happen. It was honestly one of my favorite parts of the book. Like you said, it was obviously written by someone who was like familiar with the trope. It wasn't like necessarily making fun of it. It was more like, I'm going to acknowledge that this is a thing that I'm making happen by having the characters do it. And it was just a really fun use of like a well-known trope done in like a slightly different way. So there's just all of these moments like that, like that feels it's like a fun romance novel. It kind of feels like fun and fresh. And like it's like the author's like, I know all these tropes, and I'm gonna do them like my way. And I was like, yes, I love to see that. Also, in terms of tropes, I think I don't want to spoil the ending of this book because we haven't really gone into spoilers other than like obviously romance novels have a happy have a happily ever after ending. But I did really enjoy the way that this book plays with the genre convention of the third act breakup by not necessarily feeling the need to follow that to a T. So I think I'm not gonna spoil how this book engages with that trope because it is a bit of a spoiler, but I appreciated that it manages to kind of play with the arc and the relationship building of a romance novel in a way that like goes beyond the traditional like we will have a terrible miscommunication and break up and then get back together at the end. So I I thought it was fun to see a romance novel that like is very enjoyable but is also sort of reworking classic tropes in the genre. Basically reading this whole book was like a delight. Like you said, not all romance novels are rom-coms, but I said this one definitely was. There was a lot of really funny parts in the book, whether it was like Jeremy making jokes or like Chloe being faced with some ridiculous situation or just like their banter, which is like the banter of two people who grew up together and know each other really well. And it was just very fun to read. There was like a lot of parts where I was like, that was a good line. Like that was a good romantic bit. And I'm just enjoying this so much. It's just like an author writing at their top game, writing in a genre they're very familiar with. And I have read some other stuff by Courtney Milan in the past, but this has convinced me that I need to go read like everything that Courtney Milan has ever written. <laughs> oh, same. I've read like a couple of shorter things by her, but I think this is the first full length book I've read and it was really good. And she's written a lot of other stuff. So I need to get on reading other stuff to make sure it's as good as this, which I hope it will be. It was just a delight. I think this is the first in a series about Wedgford, so I will be eagerly awaiting any future installments. Me too. And I hope there'll be like maybe some cameo appearances of Chloe and Jeremy, because I'm not mind seeing the end. The final book we're going to talk about for this episode is The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite, which is set in early 19th century England, and it follows Lucy, a young woman who has been working for her late father as his astronomy assistant. But then she wants to become recognized as an astronomer in her own right, and she is hired by Catherine, 
a recently widowed countess to translate a French scientific text into English. And their sort of patroness astronomer relationship quickly turns into friendship and then into a romance. But Lucy is a lesbian who is fresh off of a very terrible breakup after the woman she loved ditched her to marry a man for kind of safety slash convenience's sake. And Catherine, meanwhile, is a widow who's recovering from her marriage to a very domineering, abusive man who had complete control over her life for years. So he was a kind of famed scientist and explorer, but he also really sucked as a person and as a husband. So part of this book is Lucy grappling with the sexism in the scientific world and being excluded from academic spaces and getting over the very abrupt end of her previous relationship, while Catherine is sort of trying to discover who she is and what her passion is outside of her husband's shadow. And the two of them discover that, like, one thing that they both really want is each other. I will say that I think the romance in this was like a little bit fast as they go from never having met in real life to falling in love pretty quickly and being like in a relationship. But I also did really like you get to see their growth as characters and how they navigate being in a long-term relationship that has to remain secret due to societal homophobia. Because like Catherine has been married before, but her relationship was like both public and also not a great relationship. And Lucy is still kind of trying to deal with the fact that the woman that she used to love left her for someone else. So she could be financially secure and so they're like each like how do we negotiate this long-term relationship which is something that we haven't done before and we both care about each other a lot but it's not like an easy thing to be in a relationship with someone especially because it talks a bit about like there's a bit of a power difference between them because Catherine is the one who is paying Lucy for her work and like Lucy lives in her house and like her work is being funded by someone else and so the book kind of has to deal with both like how do we have like a long-term committed relationship while society won't recognize us as being romantic partners? And also how do we make sure that our relationship is equal and one of us has a lot more power and money in society? I agree. I think the romance was a little bit fast, but I really liked that you get to see their growth as characters and how they navigate that long-term relationship, especially because you really see how their relationship has a positive impact on like multiple aspects of their life. Like Lucy finally finds someone who has like confidence in her ability as a female astronomer and someone who is committed to her and won't just like ditch her to marry a man for convenience's sake because Catherine, I think, knows what it's like to be in an unhappy marriage to a man and is like, I'm not going to repeat that. Catherine, I think if we were to use modern labels, would be bisexual because she has genuinely been attracted to men and like her relationship with her husband did start off nice before it soured, whereas Lucy is only interested in women and so if you were to apply a modern label to her, it would be a lesbian. But I just like that you get to see how their relationship kind of gives them both sort of like new confidence and a willingness to pursue what they love in life because they have someone who's supporting them they can fall back on. So Catherine, who was married to a scientist, kind of just existed to like help her husband as an assistant and like follow him around to various trips around the world. But now that her husband is gone, she sort of discovers a passion for art in her that she had sort of told herself was like not as important or groundbreaking as the scientific stuff her husband followed. But uh, Lucy sort of encourages her and is like, no, like art and science are equally valuable. The fact that you want to do embroidery and that you're really good at sewing is like not lesser than being interested in science. Well, Lucy is finally got someone in her corner who can sort of advocate for her against the sexism in the scientific community of the time, someone who like backs her up financially, but also emotionally. And the way that like they as characters, like, their relationship is built off of like, you know, they're attracted to each other. They like each other's company, but also they really like help the other one advocate for what they want to do in life. And I like that you really see their relationship in sort of like a long-term way and the like the positive effects it has on their lives and their sort of career trajectories. So I think 
it was a little fast, but like once you got into the, the section of the book where like they've sort of settled into a relationship and are kind of navigating like their outward passions and what it means for them to like live together and support each other, I really liked that part of the book. Like I said earlier, I do really like when characters in romance novels have like a specific interest that they're into besides just like their partner. And in this case, it was embroidery and art and astronomy. And there's some really interesting conversations about how society values art and science differently and regards them as total opposites. But in reality, there's actually a lot of connections between the two. So I liked that as an aspect of the novel a lot. And I think this book also just described Lucy and Catherine's passions for their interests really well and really vividly. Like there's some really good descriptions of Catherine's embroidery and it talks a lot about like Lucy's childhood love of astronomy and how she became her father's assistant in order to learn more about it so I just liked that this was a book that felt like both the main characters have like something they're really interested in besides just romance. I feel like the story really validates both of the passions of the characters because Lucy wants to do something that is traditionally a field reserved for men. Like she wants to do math and science and calculate stars and write scientific papers and be accepted as a woman, not as like her father's assistant who is doing work on his behalf. And she wants to break into a traditionally male field, whereas Catherine is really interested in embroidery and visual art, which is something that is seen as traditionally feminine. So her arc is less about like breaking into a field and being validated by men and more like realizing that just because something is seen as like traditionally a female art that doesn't mean it doesn't have value and like her art has importance and brings joy and requires skill and the way that like it's a story that's not just like women who want to go do things that are traditionally male are cool it's like also like traditionally female spheres are important and have like skill and strength behind them so I just thought it was really cool like the way that the embroidery and the astronomy aspects of the book balanced each other that way I also thought that this book did a pretty good job of handling the characters kind of thoughts about their sexualities. Lucy, like you said, is only attracted to women and would probably call herself a lesbian if she existed in modern day times. And she's pretty secure in this knowledge. She's known like since she was a teenager that she's only interested in women and she's not going to get married to a man if she can help it. And she only wants to have relationships with women. But Catherine, who was married to a man probably a long time and is still kind of trying to come out of the shadow of like this neglectful abusive relationship is sort of trying to figure out like who she is and what she wants in the world and so she has like a little bit of a sexuality crisis but she's like oh man I'm also into women I guess but then she like manages to settle into it pretty quickly there's kind of a funny part where she is thinking about like other people she might have been interested in, in the past remembers like this one really like beautiful sophisticated countess that she met in Italy that she spent a lot of time thinking about and drawing she's like oh man that was gay of me wasn't it I was like into her I just didn't realized it at the time which was kind of funny and so like the characters have slightly different ways of like dealing with their sexualities but in the end like they managed to come together pretty well I think. I think it also plays into like you said sort of the like not exactly power imbalance but like the different places that Catherine and Lucy hold in society because Catherine is wealthier and also older I think she's in her 30s and Lucy is in her 20s Lucy's family is not as wealthy as Catherine's and Lucy is younger, but like Lucy is much more sure in her sexuality and has had relationships with women before, even if they didn't end well. Whereas Catherine is just sort of starting to recognize and embrace that part of herself over the book. So I think that sort of added like an equalizing factor to their relationship. It's not just like Catherine is the one who knows everything about society and has like all the ins and all the wealth. It's like Lucy also has like knowledge of the way that society works in the way that Catherine doesn't so it sort of was like different characters bring different things to the table in their relationship. 
Yeah, and the conflict in their relationship isn't so much as like, oh no, we're two women in a relationship, what does this mean? It's more like, we know that we love each other and we're in a committed relationship, but it's like, we can't get married, so how do we make sure that like, we can stay in this committed partnership together and like, I don't want my other partner to leave me, but like, there's no way that we can like have a legally binding marriage together, so how does that work? And also the idea that Lucy doesn't want to be beholden to Catherine like Catherine is her patron and like pays her and provides her room and board and food and clothing and in society but Lucy does want to be independent on her own and she doesn't want to be like totally under the power of someone else so it felt like realistic conflicts that emerged from that relationship this book unlike the last one we discussed does have a third act breakup but it does feel like it came out of like a realistic place of insecurities and issues that needed to be dealt with before they could like move on into another part of their relationship so I wasn't like that mad that they broke up I was like yeah I think you guys do have some issues you need to talk about before you can like continue being in a committed long-term relationship right like they're both kind of dealing with the after effects of the relationships they were in right before this book started. Lucy, in that her previous girlfriend basically ditched her without a word to go marry a man because she was like, this is what I need to do for safety and convenience. Whereas Lucy is like, I am not willing to do that. Like, I can't be open about my sexuality because it's the 1800s, but I'm not going to lie and marry a man just because I think that would make my life easier. So Lucy has a lot of fear about like abandonment, whereas Catherine have this like relationship with your husband that started off sweet and then became like really terrible and he sort of just controlled her whole life and demeaned her so she has like a fear of being trapped in another relationship and the way that their fears about their relationships are like polar opposites like I need someone who's committed to me versus I am afraid of committing to someone felt like a realistic thing they really had to work through so I like that it wasn't just like oh I am attracted to women. What is this? Being gay is not real. And what what is this like kind of conflict? It was more like we have personal baggage that isn't even related to societal homophobia that we have to work through on an individual level before we can enter into a relationship, which I thought just as a book made it feel like stronger and more interesting that the characters have these like real genuine issues. Even though the characters love each other and they feel like their relationship is like empowering and safe, they also like they still have baggage from the other ways that they have interacted with people that they have to like navigate through, which just made it feel like very nuanced and real. I also thought this book had a pretty good way of like resolving the issues because they are able to kind of sit down and like talk out the problems that they were having and the anxieties they're bringing to their relationship. And they also kind of resolve the, how can we be in a committed long-term relationship but we can't get married by being like, let's start a joint business adventure where we pool our money. And this is also a legally binding agreement that can be entered even if it's not marriage. We're going to have a business investment in the place of a wedding. And I was like, you know what? Go for it. That works. Oh yeah, I thought that was sweet. Especially the way that they're going to sort of use it to advocate for female artists and scientists and how it just really ties into their individual passions. So I just like the fact that their relationship is sort of like the bedrock for both of these characters to like pursue these passions and better themselves, I liked. And I think there aren't as many romance novels I've read where like you really see characters navigating a long-term relationship. A lot of it's like, will they, won't they get together? But this one was like, they get together, but actually that's just like the beginning of things they have to work through. Yeah, I think this is part of the series and there are a couple other books that are also about women living in around the same time period, also like being gay and having relationships. I think the next one deals more with like lower class people. I think one of the main characters works in a print shop, which I definitely want to read at some point. It sounds good. And one of the main characters is a beekeeper, which I think is a great protagonist occupation for a romance novel. So I definitely want to go read that at some point. That is. I'm a big fan of books where characters have an occupation that is like interesting and unique 
probably because I read so many fantasy novels where the character's like, I'm an assassin, and I'm like, okay, but what else do you know about the world? So I like the idea of a beekeeper. I think that's cool. Basically, I enjoyed this book. I thought it did like a pretty good job of having a compelling romance while also kind of being like, if two women in the 1800s did want to be in a long-term relationship, like how would they do that? And how would they navigate it? And what kind of issues would arise? And I think it was done in a way that felt like both romantic and sweet, but also had like a realistic outcome with some like struggles that they had to work through. And I thought it was just generally pretty satisfying. I'll definitely be reading the author's other books because I'm really curious to keep reading about how she writes about like these women in the 1800s kind of like living their lives and also trying to have romance at the same time. Agreed. I definitely want to read more of Olivia Waite's stuff. And now we have reached the end of our discussion of specific romance novels. This was kind of an interesting delve into the genre. Uh, there obviously are more historical romance novels that I have read in the past that we weren't talking about for this episode, but I did sort of enjoy like putting together a list of romance novels and seeking them out. And I think it has been helpful to read romance novels and consider how people construct romance because I don't write romance novels, but sometimes I write stories that have elements of romance. And I think reading these has made me think about how authors create compelling relationships and how characters function in relation to each other and as individuals. So like just on a writing and reading level, I think it's been an interesting experience. Also, I'm just glad we got around to recording this episode because it had been uh, a while since we started planning it. An embarrassingly long time. But to be fair, I had to request some of the books to the interlibrary loan system where I go to college, which is really slow. So it took a while to get them. I think romance novel tropes are not inherently a bad thing. I've definitely read like romance novels about like the rake or like, alas, I must marry to save my rich family from becoming slightly less rich. And like, there are tropes for a reason and they're like enjoyable for a reason and they've endured because people really enjoy them and they're fun to read about. But I think subverting them in certain ways, like we've discussed in these different books, can also be really fun. It's kind of cool to see authors like take a look at established tropes and ideas of romance and be like, okay, but what if we did it like this? Or the relationship was like this? Or the third act breakup went like this? Or this trope appeared in like a slightly different way? And so I think it's really fun to see how romance authors take these ideas and these romance tropes that have been around for a really long time and kind of use the building blocks to make something new and different and fun to read about. Agreed. I also liked that some of these books were quite funny as well as being romantic. I like character banter and I think having something that is entertaining to read is a good way of endearing the reader to the relationship. If the banter between characters is good, you will want to see them interact more and they will root for their relationship. Like in The Queer Principles of Kit Webb or The Duke Who Didn't, you really just enjoy seeing Chloe and Jeremy or Kit and Percy play off of each other. And you're like, I want to see these characters interact more because your dialogue is entertaining. So I think humor can be a really good element of building a compelling relationship, as well as just like characters finding each other like compelling or attractive. I think banter is just like such a good part of romance novels. Yeah, I think a good romance author can write physical attraction in a way that is compelling to read about. And you're like, these people find each other hot. Are they going to hook up? When are they going to hook up? How's it going to go? But also, if you really want me to be like interested in a character's relationship and like invested in these two people as like a couple, I feel like I have to be invested in them like not just on surface level, like two hot people make them kiss, but also like, do they get along? Do they have shared interests? Do they think the other one is fun to spend time with? And I think all of these novels succeeded really well in writing romances where they not only find the other person attractive, but also find them like enjoyable to spend time with and their banter is fun to read about and entertaining, which is tough. I have written romance before, not like romance novels, but romances within other stories. And it's really tough to like, 
write a story about two people who fall in love and to make it like compelling and interesting and fun to read about. So I have a lot of respect for romance authors for writing romance arcs over and over again, but always managing to make it feel fresh and interesting in some new way. Also, I enjoyed that a number of these books are about characters really supporting each other in non-romantic contexts, like Evan in A Caribbean Heiress in Paris, really supporting Luz in her business endeavors in a world that like doesn't really want her to succeed. And he's not like a savior about it. He's like, I want to stand behind you while you succeed and you pave the path. Or the fact that, you know, Evelyn and Ahmed in The Siren of Sussex are both like, they want to, they care about the other person and they want to see them succeed. Like, Ahmed wants to see Evelyn provide for her family and Evelyn wants to see Ahmed have a successful business as a dressmaker and a tailor. Or in The Duke Who Didn't, like, Jeremy wants to help Chloe with her unnamed sauce and get revenge. Or the way that Catherine and Lucy both support each other in their passions. And I think that makes it really compelling to see these characters, like, as adults navigating a relationship because it's like, not only is your relationship, like, enjoyable, but, like, you see these characters, like, genuinely improving their lives and having confidence to do things because they have someone who supports them. Yeah, one of the things that I enjoyed so much about the Duke who didn't is that Jeremy is like, Chloe is not marrying into my family and becoming a duchess. I'm marrying into her family, the sauce makers. And I was like, I support a feminist king, actually, which was really great. But yeah, I think a thing that I really like about these romance novels is that aside from like finding the other person like really hot and wanting to make out with them, they also just like support each other in ways that are really fun and enjoyable to read about and make for like really compelling and sweet relationships. Also, I just want to mention, I think that all of these books prove something which I think is really important about romance, which is that enthusiastic consent can be really sexy when it's written right. I don't like romance novels where they like suddenly start tearing off each other's clothing and then like have sex without talking about it. I appreciate when characters are like, do you want to get married? Do you want to kiss? Do you want to have kids? Like, what do you want to do? And like, I think that can be written in a way that's like really compelling and good if the author does it right. And I think that these authors managed to nail it really well. Also, sometimes it can still be, like, funny and entertaining. Like, the sex scenes in The Duke Who Didn't and The Queer Principles of Kit Webb, like, the characters still have their personalities and the way that they might, like, clash during them. Like, Percy is still, like, kind of annoying during the sex scenes. Or, like, Jeremy still, like, sometimes doesn't take things seriously. And the way that I think, like, they feel very tailored to the individual characters. It's not just like, ah, and now we shall write erotica. It's like, these are these two characters that you know interacting with each other on an intimate level. And their relationship dynamic still exists in the same way, whether or not they're wearing clothing or not, is, like, impressive to me. Because, okay, also, I just think writing, like, romance is really hard. So anytime I read a good romance scene, I'm like, I can't do that. How are you doing that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, if you're writing a romance scene and the characters don't still have their personalities from earlier in the book, I think you're doing it wrong but all of these authors managed to do it correctly i just really have like a lot of respect for romance authors because i think it is so hard to write romance that feels like fresh and interesting and not formulaic but these books like sort of managed to put new spins on old tropes like and there was only one bed or marriage of convenience or forbidden romance but like they, they feel fresh and interesting and grounded in these specific characters and even though obviously you're reading a book that by virtue of being a romance novel guarantees that there will be a happy ending I was still like oh no how are they going to overcome their problems when will they kiss oh my god just talk to each other you idiots. And like there, there was still like real tension in these books, even though you know that like they're going to kiss and fall in love and have a, have, a, have a happily ever after because that's like a staple of the genre. But you're like, how is it going to happen? How are they going to overcome these problems? How are they going to declare their love? And making the reader want to see it play out for these specific characters, because you know how it's going to go in general, but you don't know how it's going to go in specifically this book. 
I think is the hallmark of a good romance novel. Like, obviously, Chloe and Jeremy are going to kiss and fall in love and live happily ever after. But I was like, oh my god, how are they going to resolve the fact that he's secretly a duke? I need to see how this is going to happen. And like, there was still genuine tension there because I was like, I need to see how this is going to happen, even though I know it is going to happen in some form. I think my final thought I have is that if Bridgerton, the TV show, has done nothing else, it has definitely proven that there's a really big audience for adaptations of romance novels out there. Like, people like period dramas about hot people falling in love and having drama. It's entertaining to watch. And I have to ask, when are all of these authors going to get the Bridgerton treatment? When do I get my, like, Wedford Trials movie and all that stuff? Like, I really enjoyed it. Because the thing about Bridgerton is that it's a TV show that added a lot of diverse casting, but it was also relatively colorblind casting because the books are all white and they're just like, well, this character's going to be Black and this character's going to be Indian and, like, we're going to, like, touch on it, but it's not actually part of the original story. And I think it is important to have adaptations that like add diversity that were not there in the original thing but also there are so many good romance novels about like queer characters and characters of color and disabled characters and immigrants and lower class people and it would be neat if those also got adapted and became really big because they're also really good stories literally i want the duke who didn't on my screen immediately please Anyway, Hollywood, if you're listening to our podcast, we have ideas, please call us up or you can email us at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com. With that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can follow us on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, on Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com. Our website is NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.com. And you can also rate us and leave a review on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening.